Living Permaculture Show on Public Radio, KDNK. This is Stephanie Sison here with Jerome Ossentowski. We have a very special show for you today. We are recording live from Jerome's home from Crimpy, the Central Rocky Mountain Permaculture Institute, here during the last day of the Permaculture Academy. So we have students running around Jerome's tr- forest jungle here, uh, planting trees, mulching swales, digging new swales, and learning planting mushrooms, Jerome says. So that's super exciting. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about what's going on here over these last couple weeks and discuss um, all kinds of fun topics with our surprise guest, Michael Judd, who showed up here at Jerome's place to wow the students with his permaculture knowledge and wild fruit addition to Jerome's uh, food forest, the Pow Pow, which many of our listeners will remember us doing a couple shows on Pow Pow maybe five or six years ago now, quite a while. Having uh, one of the experts in Pow Pow, uh, Michael has written a book uh, for the love of Pow Pow, and I he did a cloud funding for that book. He self-published it, and I helped that. He gave me a bunch of copies, and I gave them away, and, and he sold a bunch of copies here while he was here. He also has another book on edible landscape with a permaculture twist, which is a very, very good introduction book for uh, people designing their own backyards and making them look very aesthetically beautiful. But you know, just to have him here, he's on a family vacation. He stopped by and and taught for a day and I've been having these very bad luck planting pow pows here so I had some that I put in the nursery for an extra two years and then we were able to plant them out in very designated places with a with his expertise of how to plant them and the students got involved so it was a really good day of of, of maybe we're going to have pow pows here in, <laughs> in five or six years and um, it'll all be um, sort of a group effort here so um, Welcome, Judd. Welcome, Michael Judd. Welcome to Crimpy and to the Living Permaculture Show. Thank you. It's it's good to be here. It's it's fun to be with you because you're so excited uh, about the, the what we call it the Paul Paul, Paul Paul Pow Pow. You know, yeah. uh, we're talking about basically a tropical fruit uh, that has adapted itself uh, to grow all the way into modern day northern Canada, Ontario. Wow. I know it's it, there's nothing like it um, uh, in the sense that it migrated, you know, for for millennia uh, from what's called modern day northern Mexico. Uh, it's the only member of the Anona family, the custard apple family, which is all tropical and subtropical fruits. We know the custard apple. We know the cherimoya, the guanabana of that family. But the pawpaw began to migrate on receding glaciers uh, in the guts of, uh, of, of mastodons and giant sloths, just slowly and gradually adapting. We're talking about amazingly adaptive species here that just kept migrating all the way, all the way north and into the cold climate. And it is a fully tropical fruit. Mm-hmm. The, the, the tree, you look at it, it's got these large lobed, like foot long green leaves uh, that are tropical. The fruit is, and of course, you know, with any fruit, there's there's the wild, and then there's the more cultivated, and that goes for the pawpaw as well. 
where a wild pawpaw can kind of be small, maybe the size of a of a small potato, and can you know have many large seeds in it and bitter tastes. But then there are also select ones that sometimes are found in the wild, uh, but more commonly have been uh, cross pollinated and selected by humans for you know for thousands of years as well. And these pawpaws can get large. Uh, these, these are the size of a, of a large mango, averaging a pound a piece. And inside of these exquisite fruits is this custard-like flesh that has the flavors of banana and pineapple and mango. Mm. Truly tropical, super sweet, very aromatic, uh, no bitter notes or aftertastes, and it is, it's, it's nature's dessert. Um, you know, I, I've had the good fortune to live in the tropics uh, for almost 20 years of my life and growing many amazing tropical fruits, many of the same family of the Anona, and I consider the pawpaw one of the best tropical fruits I've ever had. So it's not this, oh, maybe it's tropical, maybe it's tasty. No, it is exquisite. Uh, and it's phenomenal in that it grows in the north. I mean, there's, I mean, I don't know of any other tropical fruit that grows outside in the <laughs> north. Uh, and I'm from Maryland in the mid-Atlantic, and it grows wild everywhere there. It's in the woods. It's on the edge of the woods. We pull it out into full sun, and it's super productive. We're talking about an amazingly adaptive species. Uh, it stands out, obviously. Anything that's migrated from the tropics into the cold north and, and is thriving is a very adaptive species. And I think that's why it's exciting to be experimenting with it here at over 7,000 you know, feet in the Rocky Mountains. Um, and I think, Jerome, you're the, you're the perfect person to, to, to be working with the pawpaw. You yourself are a very adaptive species, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and living in this, this harsh environment and creating lush tropical growth and food forests that are just dripping with fruit and, you know, all the amazing abundance that you have here. Uh, I think it's very possible uh, for the pawpaw to, to be established here. Uh, really what the pawpaw needs uh, is, is, is good, good, good amount of moisture because it has that big leaf, right? Anything with a big leaf is, is evapotranspirating a lot of moisture. So it needs to have a source of moisture coming in. And so wind protection is part of that. So I think with wind protection and adequate moisture, um, and then you, you need a certain amount of heat units during the summer to ripen the fruit. The tree itself will survive, uh, you know, once it's established, you know, up to like negative 20 into zone four. Uh, but that fruit ripening is going to be dependent on sort of having a, a warm enough, you know, long enough summer. Uh, and certainly there are cultivars and genetics within the pawpaw that uh, ripen sooner than others, you know. And, and again, the pawpaw will begin to adapt quickly anyway. So if you're getting some seedlings going here and, and you start to, you know, after a couple of generations, take those seeds and keep growing those, you know, I think you can start to get a regionally adaptive pawpaw. Because we're on the edge here, but we're talking about an edge species, you know, an adaptive species. Uh, so I'm always, you know, people always say, well, do you think it'll grow here? And I'm like, well, you, you know, I don't put anything past the pawpaw, you know, <laughs> try it. It's being grown extensively now in Europe, uh, you know, Korea, South Korea is planting it intensively, partly for its medicinal qualities because the leaves and the twigs have acetogenins in it. And, and it's really, you know, the pharmaceutical industry and, and even herbalists are really turning on to 
what an amazing uh, medicine this is. So in many ways, this is, an, uh, this is, a, this is a really a, a fruit of the times for us uh, to, to pair with. Uh, you know, especially as we as we move through a lot of change in our planet, you know, working with adaptive species like the pawpaw, I think, is, is really key. And it's exciting just to try something new. I mean, I mean, we have some species we have good luck with. with you know, hit citrus is pretty easy to grow in, in the Phoenix greenhouse. And, you know, there are some some difficulties with pawpaw, and I've tried several times, but now I think we have seven-year-old trees that we planted out yesterday that were grafted, and then we have some seedlings. So um, we're going to try them in different aspects in the forest garden. Uh, I've selected some areas that potentially would be um, protective for them and have some decent soil, and, and they would fit into a guild, um, into the existing guild. So we just sort of insert them, kind of infill, is what we say. And when I was in, in Europe doing a book signing, um, a book tour several years ago, um, I was doing a talk in Slovenia at, at a Waldorf school, and there were about 40 people there, and, and pow-pow is a big thing in Slovenia. Uh, there was a guy who brought a pow-pow fruit, and I had I had the the other book that's on pow-pow. What was, what was it, Brown is his name? Uh, Andrew Moore. Andrew Moore mm-hmm. has written a really introductory book on Pow Pow, the history of Pow Pow. I had that book with me. I was reading it on the plane and the plane and, and the train when I was traveling in Europe. So I brought that to the table and he brought his Pow Pow and we sliced it up in little cubes. And there were other Pow Pow enthusiasts. One guy said he'd bought a, a you know a seven foot tree for fifteen hundred dollars from a nursery <laughs> or some other Pow Pow grower. So you know, the, it's, there's a fever. And talk a little bit about your your Pow Pow festival that you put on. And there's been for about 130 years there have been Pow Pow festivals in the Northeast. And yeah, yeah it's it's become quite the hipster thing these days. I think the, the Washington Post did an article and they, they called it uh, the hipster banana. Uh, but really, the Paw Paw has been known. Um, wherever it's grown uh, wild, which is pretty extensive. Uh, It's naturalized uh, in 26 states in the U.S. Uh, And then, of course, it keeps expanding out of that region. Uh, But indigenous peoples and peoples that have lived on this land have have known the pawpaw, you know, for for eons. Uh, But it is getting a renaissance now, uh, and festivals are starting to pop up. Yeah, especially in the in the mid-Atlantic where it does really well in Ohio there's a big one you know they've, they've got like 10,000 people that come to theirs you know that's partly because of the Paul Paul beer you know you make some alcohol and everyone's gonna show up it's a, ice it's cream a, it, uh, well ice cream yes not as big a crowd but yes ice cream uh, <laughs> we make ice cream uh, so we we started a Paul Paul festival at our uh, our permaculture uh, site in Maryland uh, this is our sixth year so this is our sixth annual Paul Paul festival and it's amazing the energy that is created uh, around the pawpaw. You know, the first year we did it, we you know we didn't kind of know who was going to show up, and we got 500 people. Wow! Just showed up, and and they were all super excited, you know, about the pawpaw. And, and every year since, the pawpaw fest has had its own excited energy, and I really attribute this to the pawpaw. 
uh, and I've noticed this about the Paul Paul and these different events, these different places, is that it really kind of brings people together. There's 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 this there's some kind of unity that's happening through the you know through the Paul Paul. I mean that sounds a little woo woo, I know, but I'm watching it and I'm seeing it and I'm not seeing it with all the other things and other fruits and other things we're doing. So there's there's a real energy that that's around this tree, the species. Um, that are these people are kind of on the edge. Are the edge people? On the- no, I mean, well, you know, we, we're you know we're like we're like forty five minutes from both Baltimore and, and Washington D.C. Uh, so a lot of these people are coming out of the cities and suburbanites. You know, these are foodies. You know, they're interested. They're curious, and and so we 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 have all these different cultivars that you can try. So the pawpaw has a great spectrum of flavors and consistencies. So on one end of the sort of the cultivated pawpaw range, you have pawpaws that have a sort of a, a white, creamy, firm flesh and smooth, um, sort of mellow, aromatic flavors. And then on the other end of that spectrum, you have a very deep yellow, orange, maybe slightly softer flesh with very rich aromatic, you know, notes to it. Um, so, so there's this great spectrum for people to experience and to choose from and find out where you like to be mm-hmm. on that spectrum. And most people love it because it's very sweet as well as aromatic. Um, some people who don't like custard consistency may not go for the pawpaw, but otherwise it seems to be a real hit. Um, so people come to the festival and we, we get to trial all these different fruits, but unknowing to them, they're also getting exposed to all of, you know, our food forest designs, mm. how we grow mushrooms outdoors. We have a circular straw bale house, uh, that's got earthen floors and lime plasters and living roof and round wood timber framing and compost toilets and gray water systems and so you know the pawpaw is kind of the poster child that you know the draws everybody in draws everybody in and then and then like they're just like wow and then we do these tours and we have great music and we have we make pawpaw ice cream and we have a rocket stove you know it's a really efficient wood burning uh you know stove for making pawpaw jam on and we got an earthen oven going and and so like it really becomes this cultural experience that, that that really turns people on to a lot more and again, it's the pawpaw. It's the draw. It brings them in, and and but then it opens up this whole, you know, real ecological, you know, world, and seeing how, you know, the pawpaw is is adapting and fitting in, as we are as humans looking to adapt and fit in to a constantly changing world. So mm-hmm. it's a great teacher in many ways. You know, we are in in the sixth extinction of this planet. Absolutely. And if we look back at the previous extinctions, you know, what we know about them were the species, the handful of species that made them through it were the ones that paired with fungi, especially, but with other, and obviously the pawpaw, it's been around, you know, so what are these very adaptive species that are in our midst, you know, that we really should be, you know, interacting with more and more uh, as we go deeper and deeper into this extinction period and look and how to learn from them and adapt and just evolve. Well, and that kind of leads us into um, your other book. You mentioned quite a few things that are in that book. Um, so I'd love for you to share with our listeners um, some of those strategies and, and the other book that you have that I have right here, The Edible Landscaping with a Permaculture Twist. Can you tell us about the strategies that are in there and what people can um, expect to learn from a book like that? Because I found it extremely valuable. Yeah, it's it's a very how-to book. It's based on on experience that that I've had and, and designs that I've worked on. 
uh, it's short on philosophy and like how to, uh, and, and kind of taking away things that might confuse people interested in, in moving into, uh, you know, permaculture and edible landscaping. And so each chapter is kind of broken into almost like a project. Uh, and certainly, you know, so the first chapter is like, you know, how to build an herb spiral, you know, mm -hmm. something that's attractive, something that has multiple functions, uh, that's very usable and kind of get you, get you going saying, ah, oh, this was great. I've, I had success with that. The next chapter is on swales, uh, on contour. So these are raised beds that basically you're putting them perpendicular to a slope and you're digging out a basin and you're using that soil to build a downhill berm. Uh, so as water is coming down your landscape, it falls into that basin, and since it's on contour, it stops and it sinks in, and it hydrates, you know, the landscape for 30, 40 feet below, and this really recharges the soil and allows things to really flourish. Swales, I use swales for, I would say, almost 90% of the designs and landscapes I work on, I use swales on contour because of the dramatic change that it makes in building soil, holding water passively. It just it dramatically changes everything. I highly recommend learning about swales uh, and experimenting with them, even on a small scale. And that's what your students are up there doing right now. Yeah, we're building or tweaking out a swale that was already in place, showing how the water flows through that. They're all connected, so there'll be a swale the water starts at one end, it goes to a spillway, it spills down to the next swale, and then it goes to the next spillway, and it can meander all the way down uh, that eastern slope there. And, uh, and we're going to be doing mushroom planting with cottonwood logs and some other um, wood chips, different, different kinds of mushrooms, oysters, and uh, uh, lion's mane, I believe, so we're going to do that. Talk a little bit about your, uh, your next book, your the Love of Pow Pow, um, and it's again another hands-on how-to book, and it mm -hmm. came out of your experience of growing Pow Pow and your little nursery that you set up, mm -hmm. and uh, talk a little bit about that book. Yeah, so, so yeah, I love the Paw Paw so much, I wrote, I wrote another <laughs> book about it, uh, For the Love of Paw Paws, and it's also sort of an easy introduction to to not just understanding about the Paw Paw, but, you know, the context for planting it in, in, in a more of a permaculture way as well. Um, so I, you know, again, I, the Paul Paul's the, you know, the poster child here, uh, for, for adding in understanding about how to shape your landscape, you know, with swales, hugel culture beds, which are basically wood covered with soil and these different methods for, for designing and then, you know, bringing in the Paul Paul and your other fruit trees so that the inputs for you are greatly reduced in the long run by doing a little bit of design up front. Um, but the book definitely gets into, you know, how to start from seed with the pawpaw, uh, the tricks to germinating those in a shorter time period, uh, how to grow them out for the first couple of years, uh, how to create, you know, really moisture-rich, you know, food forest patches, you know, the, the appropriate amount of mulch that's needed, uh, how to then succeed that with ground covers, uh, how to prune and maintain your pawpaws for easy harvesting and access, 
uh, when and how to pick the pawpaw, how to store the pawpaw, how to process the pawpaw, some amazing recipes. We've got a great, I worked with a lot of forager chefs and vegan chefs and all kinds of foodies to create a really good uh, chapter on on recipes and working with it. So even if you're not growing the pawpaw and you can find some, some frozen pulp, uh, which is becoming more common, uh, or in season, finding at a f- local farmer's market some pawpaws uh, that you'll you'll know how to work with them. Um, and then, yeah, resources and, and connection and some of the, the community that's involved with the pawpaw, um, you know, some of the individuals that have done a lot of work with breeding the pawpaws, like Neil Peterson, uh, who's known as sort of the Mahatma uh, of pawpaws, <laughs> dedicated his life uh, to finding a lot of the old pawpaw genetics. And we planted two of his cultivars yesterday. Correct. <laughs> yes, he has, I think, seven cultivars that are named after U.S. rivers with indigenous names, so like Shenandoah, Susquehanna, Potomac. Uh, and I love his his work. I love his pawpaws. I highly recommend all of the Peterson pawpaws. Um, you know, for, for growing. Uh, Kentucky State University it has done a lot of focused work with the pawpaw, a little more on the commercial side to see how the pawpaw can, can grow. And it has, I think in the last five years alone, many new pawpaw orchards have popped up. So we're going to be hearing and seeing a lot more about the pawpaw, largely because of this investment that many growers have made. Uh, the pawpaw would be better known uh, across the, the country and the world if it had a better shelf life, right? So this is another reason to grow it yourself or have it nearby uh, is that it, it, it's, it's very perishable. Uh, it, it ripe, after it ripens, uh, you know, on the counter, you have two or three days to eat it. You could refrigerate it for up to a week, but the real saving grace with it, because it can be very productive, you know, we're talking easily 35 plus pounds of fruit per tree wow. that's grown in sun. So full sun, um, but you can pulp it and freeze that pulp easily for a year, sometimes up to two years, and it stays in good quality. So I think that's also where we might see pawpaw showing up more and more in our food systems. Uh, and it's super nutritious, I and mean, it's like a complete food. It's got like a complete amino count to it. It's got wonderful fats, um, you know, n- you know, vitamins and minerals in it. I literally run on pawpaws during pawpaw season when I'm working hard, <laughs> and I'm out there and I haven't eaten breakfast and I haven't eaten lunch, and all I'm eating is pawpaws. I've proven that this is a this is a complete superfood because uh, that's all I eat during that season, and I, my body runs on it. And just um, being a superfood, um, Lewis and Clark expedition, when they were going back to their base camp after their big long outing, uh, they ran out of food a couple of days, three days before they got to the Missouri camp, and. Um, all they were eating was pawpaw. <laughs> and um, naming all of these um, cultivars after these rivers, that goes back to the Native Americans. They were, they were obviously eating, there was indication that they were cultivating and eating pawpaw, uh, especially in the Missouri and Kentucky areas. So, um, and in fact, they, they would have starved to death if it wasn't for the pawpaw. The Lewis and Clark yeah, yes. expedition, so yeah. That, that came out in... Uh, in, in the, the other book, Andrew Moore's book. Yes, right. Yeah, his his. So Andrew Moore's book uh, is a great one for the the history right. and the story, kind of an odyssey about the pawpaw. 
Uh, and, and there was a time in the early 1900s when it, there was another resurgence like there is now. Talk a little bit about that time. So there was a competition put on in 1916, um, and it was based in Washington, D.C., where they said, okay, mail us in, you know, your pawpaws, your, fa you know, your favorite pawpaws, which is kind of a crazy thing to think about in 1916, the mail system of <laughs> pawpaws. But, you know, they did get a, they got a huge response. And they were able to catalog and they found, you know, a few excellent varieties, which are some of the genetic base for some of the cultivated pawpaws today. Uh, but what it really showed was that there was a quite a strong culture around the pawpaw. And people used to go in the woods a lot more back then, you know, and, and work with the pawpaw. And it was a lot more sort of homesteading and, and work with the fruit. Uh, but then I think, you know, we stopped going into the woods and, and you know, we started getting into more industrial agriculture. And, and the pawpaw, you know, patiently was hanging on the side. <laughs> and, and now it's, it, it does it have its renaissance. And so, and so it should. Uh, it really is a spectacular food. And, and, and in its, its thriving environment is very productive. So, so you're talking about a very productive, heavily productive, low input, ornamental, uh, you know, fruit tree that's also medicinal. I mean, it's an edible landscape all-star. I mean, this is a phenomenal species. But what if you have all this pawpaw on the sidewalks messing up your streets? You know? <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully you have such a problem. Right? So, guys, yeah. I'm going to have to cut you off there. What a teaser of a show. Um, if our listeners want to learn more um, about the pawpaw, get Michael's book. Um, if listeners want to learn more about Jerome's wonderful forest garden and the workshops he has up here, uh, reach out at crmpi.org. Right now we're sitting under a fruiting pomegranate tree here in this lovely next tropical greenhouse tree. next to the orange tree here in Basalt, uh, Colorado. So, Michael, for our listeners, how can they learn more about you? Uh, we have a very informational um, website, Ecologia uh, Design, um, which obviously celebrates the Paul Paul and a lot of other things we do. Uh, of course, both my books, um, you know, capture. You spell that for everybody. Ecologia. Uh, okay, it's a Portuguese word for, for ecology. Uh, e C O L O G I A. The word design. Dot com. Uh, and if you're in our neck of the woods, uh, usually the third Saturday in September, come to our Paw Paw Fest. All right. And uh, for those listeners who have been tuning in the last few months and learning more about the Puerto Rican. PDC course we're having. We're currently trying to lure Michael down there, so stay tuned to see if we're successful in that luring. And thanks for tuning in to the Living Permaculture Show on Public Radio, KDNK. We'll see you next month. Oh, grandfather, tell me how it was when you were young. Was the world so very old? When your life had just begun Oh, grandfather, tell me